Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And shortly after the war started last year, I did an episode called A Nation Dreams of Itself, where I spoke with Ukrainian sci-fi and fantasy writers. During the course of the war, I've continued to check up on them through social media, but I wanted to talk with them to see how they're doing. I was curious if they've been able to write this year, and how does living through a war affect their creativity? And what kind of stories are they telling? If you didn't hear the episode from last year, here's a quick historical recap. When Ukraine was behind the Iron Curtain, most books were published in Russian, and the Soviet publishers preferred science fiction over fantasy. After the Cold War ended, publishers in Ukraine kept publishing books in Russian because a lot of Ukrainians speak Russian, and they could sell those books to Russian speakers throughout the former Soviet Union. But as Ukraine started to drift away from Russia politically, many Ukrainian writers wanted their books to be published in Ukrainian, and they were using fantasy and folklore to explore their sense of national identity. That trend picked up a lot of momentum in 2014, after Russia took Crimea. Meanwhile, in Russia, science fiction started to become more nationalistic and militaristic. And the war between Russia and Ukraine started to play out in imaginary spaces before it bled into real life. Now, there are Russian and Ukrainian writers on the front lines. And when the invasion began, the authors that I talked with said a lot of Ukrainians were using Lord of the Rings as a metaphor. They cast the Russians as invading orcs. And weirdly enough, Putin has gotten in on the act. Back in December, Putin created nine golden rings. He gave them to eight leaders in Russia's sphere of influence and kept the ninth ring for himself, which is literally what the evil wizard Sauron did in Lord of the Rings. Every article I read about this ceremony noted that this was clearly a Tolkien reference. It's mental uh, disease, I think, because uh, I, I truly couldn't uh, believe in this, but I, I read and I found this news, and yes, it's true. That is the fiction writer Svetlana Territorina. The last time we heard from her, she was fleeing to the countryside. Eventually, she came back to Kyiv because the city is so heavily protected. She says people are still living in a constant state of fear, but everyday life goes on. 
no matter what we have even cultural events and book presentation and new bookstores all books all new books it's about uh, life and, and uh, thinking about future so so you've been writing this year right yes yes uh actually i i write uh, and it was a little bit uh, not expected uh, even for me because the beginning of the uh, previous year was very awful uh, full of scary and <laughs> terror I uh, completely editing and uh, writing three short story, for example, and also I had uh, finished uh, editing my new novel, and now I am looking looking forward for this novel to be printed. And I have I have started working <laughs> for one of the biggest publishing houses in Ukraine this autumn. Wait, wait, hold on. You're working for a publishing house. What are you doing for the publishing house? Yeah, I'm working as a head of uh, PR uh, department. I uh, try to tell about uh, Ukrainian new books uh, in Ukrainian market. So the publishing industry is able to continue in Ukraine. It sounds like that's been almost unaffected. Um, and you're saying even new bookstores are opening? Yes, yes, uh, and it's amazing actually. Uh, my publishing house, um, we, we have a lot of problems because printing facilities are located in Kharkiv region, uh, which is in the east part of Ukraine and is located very close to the Russian Ukrainian border. They have everyday bombing and um, this leads to broken logistics, power supply, uh, and etc. But <laughs> they are still working. In this year, we're planning to to manage to, uh, to publish uh, three three hundred uh, new book titles. Her new book, House of Salt, will be published this year as well. It's a science fiction story set in Crimea, where she was born. The story takes place in the future, and she changed the ending because the war has given her hope. When I started this novel, I actually didn't believe, believe uh, that Crimea could be returned to Ukraine in the near future. But after uh, Kherson battles and, and its liberation, I uh, have strong belief that Crimea will, will be returned and it will be not just the mark of the end of the war, but um, true milestone of Ukrainians' victory. And that is why I, I changed uh, the finale of this novel. Now, last year, I interviewed Svetlana with her friend Volodymyr Arenev. Once again, he joined us on the call. Volodymyr hasn't written as much this year because he got a job. He's working for a game developer in Ukraine. And we are working hard with the lore of, of our world with uh, campaign, uh, uh, script, and uh, so on and so on. So I have just uh, two weekends, uh, weekend days for writing my, my books. But I'm writing. It's my, it's my work. It's my job. I mean, uh, you know, if you are, uh, for example, a uh, soldier, you are fighting. If you are medicine worker, you are, work you are working and uh, heals people. And if you are writer 
you are writing because it's your job. That's yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, what is this game that you're working on? Is it is it like a tabletop game with dice and, and a board? And what kind of world does it take place in? It's mobile game. I couldn't tell in this moment, but I could tell we put there some Ukrainian stuff. I mean, uh, some historical and mythological references. And in this moment, uh, sorry, it's it's all I could I could tell. I signed papers and couldn't tell more. Yes, even in wartime, entertainment companies make you sign NDAs. But for a lot of writers, it's been hard to find that creative spark with everything going on. I got back in touch with Maria Galina, and she hasn't been able to write fiction since the war began. It is the problem because it is very difficult to concentrate, I think not because of rate and not because of cold. I think that people live in this condition without electricity for centuries. But the problem is that you have constantly to check up news. And it is very difficult to concentrate after this. So I think that I write something like a diary, and that is all. And when she reads the news, the news is so surreal. She feels like fiction just can't compete. So she reads nonfiction, with one exception. Maybe you will laugh at me now, Eric, but I like to read Agatha Christie. Oh, Agatha Christie? Yes, I can read it. Because the world of uh, Agatha Christie is very order-like. I mean that there is some kind of order, even if there are crimes, even it, it is also punishment. And uh, it is very same. I'm interested, like you, I'm interested who reads what. And uh, so a lot of people say to me that they can read only books that they read before. No new books. Only the book they read before. Voldemir also finds it challenging to focus. He's constantly checking the news from official sources and social media. Every day when you are open uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook uh, you could read somebody died who you n- knew very well. Some of my students died, uh, for example, and so on. I asked Voldemir and Svetlana what motivates them to keep writing in this environment. Do they want to inspire people or warn them? Is writing fiction a form of escapism or therapy? It's not, it's not only one motiva- motivation. I mean, uh, of course, uh, on some levels, it could be therapy, but I always thinking about it should be not just therapy for me. If it's therapy just for me, I could write it and then I will not give it to other readers because when I writing something i'm writing for somebody and it's always dialogue it's always trying to give some messages some ideas some stories for somebody i understand many people have a so unique experience in these days and this experience should be written somewhere uh, because we understand all this things should never be again in our world. 
So we need to write about it because we need to tell other people how terrible all these things. And storytelling uh, give us tools to do it uh, better. Here's Svetlana. Yes, uh, I agree with Volodymyr. Um, it's not a therapy, but uh, it's uh, some kind of, in some way, writing uh, helps me stay focused and uh, distra distracted from the war. Because, yes, uh, I escape in my text, even if we uh, talk about fantasy, it's some kind of mix. In the one hand, I create new world. Uh, when I can leave <laughs> and when I can leave <laughs> without my reality. But in other hand, I think about uh, some historical parallels when I um, write about alternative history, alternative future, or some kind of uh, alternative past. Writing is very important uh, part of, of the life and I, I, I think much more important <laughs> than, than about previous uh, years. Why is it? Why is writing more important than ever now? Because you know, <laughs> it's uh, some kind of dramatic. But I, I, I can say you're in a you're in a war. I think you can. Uh, I think you have license to say something dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because every day for us it's uh, some kind of fight for for this day and we uh, we never uh, can say what uh, this tomorrow will be you said earlier too you said that like you know it's something about like writing is like creating life and it's about you know you're creating a world uh, writing that comes alive and then it's also thinking about the future which you know it's assuming that somebody's going to read th this someday this is going to get published someday you're sort of um you're creating something that will have a life, you know, in the future. Yes, yes, it's all about life. Yes, I, I agree. But uh, uh, about uh, our motivation, because we 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 dream about future, but we certain can imagine what it will be. Maria Galina says, during the war, writing and even reading Ukrainian fiction has become an act of patriotism. They want to preserve their culture and stop it from being dissolved and absorbed into Russia. And by the way, in this clip, you're going to hear some noises in the background while she's talking. I think that there is one of the crimes that Russia do with Ukrainian people now. It is the, they try to take away history. Uh, for example, when in the territories that are occupied, they do not allow use Ukrainian uh, test books and manuals, and uh, they uh, do not allow study Ukrainian and the Ukrainian literature. So they try just to uh, reintegrate it with Russia, but it cannot be reintegrated. It, it was never integrated, really. So how can it be? Volodymyr heard a story about a teacher who risked her life to save Ukrainian books including his books. Uh, one teacher from the uh, small town near the Kiev told me uh, when Russians came to the city, she tried to save Ukrainian books from the library because she uh, knew they will burn them, you know, as, as in uh, Bradbury's novel. 
Yeah, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, she uh, collects all these books in um, bags. And then she hides them in, uh, in, in backyard on her house. She came to me and say, say oh, uh, I saved your book and hide it. And just now I returned uh, all these books and your books, book two, in library. So the books in these days for Ukrainians, uh, it's a symbol of, of, of country, of culture, of, uh, you know, you could fire us, you could uh, try to, to kill us, but some things will save and will return. And it's stories you, you try to not cry when, when you hear it, uh, when some people tell you. If these soldiers will see these books, they, uh, they could just kill them for these books. And, you know, if somebody tell me these words, for example, five years ago or ten years ago, I would say it's too cinematical, too dramatical, too, too bookish. It couldn't be in real life, but it is. Another friend told him a story about one of his books that felt like it was out of a movie. A friend uh, says me, you know, uh, there was a missile and it, it uh, stood in, in the center of our car. Car just stayed near, near the house. And uh, car, of course, uh, was in fire and, uh, you know, broken, 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 broken. And then she sends me uh, a photo. And there is my book in this car. And uh, it's, you know, it's not uh, in fire. It's, it's very fragile things when you hear these stories. That's such an amazing image of the bomb that goes to the car and, and your book survives. What is the book? What was the book? Which book was it that survived? It's uh, Cursed Sword. It's fantasy, uh, but with reference to this part, part of this book, of, of this book is uh, about nowadays. I found a description of Cursed Sword on a Ukrainian website. The summary says... It was in ancient times, now forgotten. Heroes and monsters walked the earth then, and the former could not always be distinguished from the latter. And the word in those days was sharper than the sword, although swords were able to say their sharp word then. After the break, we'll hear from a science fiction writer who became a big literary breakout star during the war. Last year, I talked with Boris Seduk. He translates English-language sci-fi and fantasy into Ukrainian, and he says Ukrainian has become even more popular in the publishing industry. All the publishers, all the publishers in Ukraine now stopped publishing anything in Russian. Anything. Mm-hmm. Yes, but not because it's, it's a prohibited language in Ukraine, but, but because, well, uh, to publish books comics and so on in in the language of your enemy well sounds quite funny as i mentioned earlier ukrainians have been craving fantasy in reaction to all the years of soviet rule which favored science fiction but the war tipped the scales back in the opposite direction after the war started the local publishers started demanding uh, local writers to write more hard science fiction rather than fantasy 
maybe because it's well we, we, we started be more well technically oriented or well more interested in well in metal <laughs> say so <laughs> in technical achievements you mean in the last year because you've had to rely so much on technology yeah because in, in 21 well uh, uh, most of the that kind of literature on in the publishers to-do list uh, were fantasies i suppose that, that uh, all the audience now considers that with with a sword you cannot defeat uh, the russian invasion and you need tanks you need hard metal weapons <laughs> not a sword to to defeat that uh, to defeat the russian invasion so that i suppose that that, that is one of the reasons why hard science fiction is back and there is one science fiction book everyone's been buzzing about. I should tell you that, that there is at least one, well, uh, I would say new bright star uh, in the Ukrainian science fiction. Uh, it's uh, Max Kidruk, Maxim Kidruk, who uh, even launched his own publishing house recently, about a couple of months ago. And he's just issued that, uh, his first book. Well, it's not self-publishing because it's his publishing house. So, uh, But his first book was his. It, it is Colony. Colony is about a Ukrainian colony on Mars. Max is very interesting. It's very interesting what, not only as a writer, but because it's probably the first time in the Ukrainian market when a writer is also a good marketing specialist and understands not only how to write a book, but how to publish it and how to promote it. He has a, a whole team who works with him and he involves even his readers to be in his team and to help him to, well, to make better uh, novels uh, in this. Because The Colony is the first novel in the series of novels. As far as I know, there will be at least three books uh, and he preferred to, to publish it in hard copies rather than in electronics. Boris got me in touch with Max Kidruk. Max and his wife started their publishing house last year. It had been a dream of theirs for a long time. They poured their savings into it. But the printing presses are in the east, near the war zone. And when they weren't worried that the facilities were going to be bombed, they had to wait for them to get back online because the Russians kept targeting power grids. It's damn scary to, to see that you can just lose everything like in, in, in an instance. I don't know how, how the hell did they print that, that book, but they did it and they did it actually in time. Even then, he had low expectations. Everything was against this book. It's complexity because it's hard science fiction with lots of science and uh, it's just a big book and I know it's how, how hard to publish like 900 pages book in the TikTok era. And yet here we are, we already uh, ordered the second print run. The first run was the first print run was twelve thousand copies. Uh, it was sold like almost instantly. The second print run will arrive next Monday, and we already sold more than more than three quarters of it. Uh, we actually planning to order the third print run like right away. These numbers are like. They are good even for peaceful times for Ukraine. Like 20,000 copies within a month and a half. That's like really, really good for like normal times. The inspiration for the book started years ago. He was very concerned about climate change. 
and he was reading about how the warming of the oceans could lead to a mass extinction of species. And that led him to another obsession, how humans could escape the Earth and start another civilization on Mars. He spent years researching the physics of space travel and exploration, to the point where he figured out exactly how there could be an international community of humans on Mars. But he knew his main characters had to be Ukrainian. I mean, I am an Ukrainian, so I write firstly, like, and mainly for Ukrainian public. So I have to write something about Ukraine on Mars. So I started thinking, like, how can I, how can I depict Ukrainian diaspora on Mars, like, in the most, like, reasonable way? For me, it was a city to, uh, you know, to picture a Ukraine like a huge uh, space nation. I mean, if you read this, you would like some kind of bullshit. I mean, you, you will not believe in this. So I was thinking, what, what could we do best? What do we do best right now as a nation? We grow food, like potatoes, corn and stuff. And then I realized like, look, we know how to do this. We know how to do this efficiently. So I, I decided that my diaspora, Ukrainians on Mars, they grow everything in this way. So they provide like, 70% of food on Mars. And Ukrainians don't have, I mean, they don't, they don't influence some kind of politics uh, directly because they are not in this kind of the uh, Council of 1919, which is the body like uh, which... Uh, it's like the UN Security Council, sort of like, yeah. They have no direct access to it, but uh, because, of, because they uh, provide lots of food, this uh, Council of 19, every time, every year goes to Ukrainian diaspora and asks like how many new newborns they can feed, how many new colonies they can uh, invite from, from the earth. And in this way, Ukrainians influences politics and processes in the Martian colony. So I really had fun writing the, this part of the story, like, I mean, how Ukrainians, you know, trying to get what they want manipulating with the food production and, and, and stuff. Yeah. And, I, and you, are, you hired artists, too, to help design elements of the, of the colony? Tell me about that. Uh, I can show you, like, if, if you... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh, that's one more reason why we decided to start our own publishing house, because you can do more. Yeah, can I say, by the way, people can't see you right now, but that is a big book that you're holding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big book. Uh, I always try to put more efforts to give something extra because I know that right now literature has to fight with lots of things like YouTube and you know uh, computer games, uh, TikTok and, and, and so on. So you have to give something extra for a reader. The detail of the images in the book were amazing. He hired a cartographer to create a 3D model of the colony. So they created images of it from every angle. The book also has graphs to explain how the Martian calendar syncs up with Earth and where the flight windows would be. He created charts which detail how many colonists arrived on Mars from the beginning and how many people were born or died there. And the book also has illustrations of low-flying aircraft. I'm an engineer by, by background. So I actually developed, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, those are, um, they look like almost like Martian helicopters. These are con Martian convertible planes. You know what is convertible plane? Kind of tilt rotor. Hmm. It's kind of a, an uh, aircraft 
which uh, starts like lifts off as a helicopter. And then during the normal fly, it lowers the engines like this and then proceeds like an, a winged aircraft. Well, it makes sense to me why this would be so popular now. I mean, you know, this, I mean, you're in a fight for survival right now. So to imagine not just Ukraine winning the war, being victorious, being independent again, but continuing to grow and expand and have an outpost on Mars, I think it's probably gives people a sense of hope. I think yes, but... Um... I wouldn't say this about the book in general, because, you know, the uh, title of the whole series is uh, uh, New Dark Ages. So nothing good happens uh, in the end, both on Mars and uh, on Earth. And that's another re reason why a quick success surprises me, because I view my, myself as a like science fiction writer, not the guy who kind of must teach people how they should do. I view myself as a guy who should depict like the worst case scenario in the most realistic way. So I will show you like, look, this what could happen. It may not, but I mean, it's really, really cool. So let's just sit and talk. What can we do so this will not happen? It's kind of the main, the main point of this book that, um, Despite all the achievement, achievement, we as as humans, we do not change. But it sounds like you're also tapping into a very common theme in science fiction, which is that technology will not save us. That it doesn't matter how advanced our technology is, we are still human, and it will be our flaws, our human flaws, that will do us in more so than you know. Technology will not be our destructor or savior necessarily. Yeah, that's basically what my story is about. By the way, the book is not available in English yet, but they're working on it. After my episode came out last year, a lot of listeners asked how they could support Ukrainian fiction writers. And I will include links again to charitable organizations in the show notes. But everybody I spoke with said, this is also a war to erase their culture and identity. So any pressure on social media helps. For instance, several people I spoke with talked about Worldcon. Worldcon is an international convention. It's held every year in a different country. This year, it's going to be in China. One of the guests of honor will be the Russian science fiction writer, Sergei Lukyanenko. Boris has been part of a campaign to get Worldcon to rescind that invitation. He said that Ukraine has no right to exist. Ukraine, there is no, no Ukrainians at all. And all Ukrainians should be eliminated because it is their land, it's Russian land. And that guy was invi invited to Chinese Worldcon to be a guest of honor? Wow. Boris has also been urging Anglophone writers to boycott Russia. We asked them to stop uh, selling licenses to their publishers, to stop dealing with, with, with Russian business, uh, and many of them did that. Including Neil Gaiman and Stephen King. That was a big deal. Stephen King, in particular, is hugely popular in Russia. But there are a lot of sci-fi fantasy writers and readers in Russia who are against Putin and against the war, and they feel like they're being unjustly punished. They're trapped in a dictatorship, they're afraid to speak out, and now they can't even dream of escaping through their favorite Western fantasy books. Volodymyr has heard those arguments, and he's not sympathetic. 
I know there is a, a point of view about good readers that good readers uh, are not uh, guilty because Putin is bad, uh, but it's it was very helpful for us in moral sense, in financial sense, because it's working. I always was very peaceful and I always was, I always believed we could find some common words, common points of view. But in this moment, it's not a time for me for peaceful uh, trying to, to, you know, to may, may, maybe, maybe there are good readers and so on. And let's be not so cruel. We could do uh, more peaceful when we will have peace. In another kind of activism, Svetlana and her friends started a YouTube channel. They actually started it before the war. Now it's become a lifeline. It's about speculative fiction, and it's mostly in Ukrainian, but they have interviewed English language writers like Joe Abercrombie, R.F. Kwong, V.E. Schwab, and Joe Hill, who happens to be the son of Stephen King. It was very uh, emotional for us. They could speak uh, with their fans uh, during our uh, online uh, streams. They have a lot of fans in Ukraine. We uh, had an interview with Joe Hill. (laughs) It was very interesting. I remember he he made interesting parallels with another uh, famous writers (laughs) like... Uh, Graham Greene or Remark and uh, Joe Hill said, um, now when I I see you, I can understand how they uh, managed to write uh, during the Second World War. <laughs> it was funny for, for me. To be compared to like Graham Greene, uh, yeah. Yeah. In all our interviews, we uh, ask our, our colleagues, our fantasy stars to to came in sometimes sometimes to ukraine and maybe we will have uh, some ukrainian con and we uh, invite you or all uh, fans uh, who wants to to see ukraine kiev our beautiful country in the future (laughs) after our win victory we uh, can speak about uh, about Ukrainian fantasy and a lot of uh, good thing that we have in Ukraine. I would love it. if you had a if you had a Ukrainian con in Kyiv, I would I would love to go. <laughs> it's a wonderful thought. Yeah. Boris is hopeful that when the war is over, speculative fiction in Ukraine will be even more popular and more deeply rooted in Ukrainian themes. We only can guess, but it will be definitely much stronger than it was before the February 24. Much stronger. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Maria Galina, Boris Saduk, Volodymyr Arenev, Svetlana Taratarina, and Max Kidruk. I put a link in the show notes to Svetlana's YouTube channel, which is called Fantastic Talks. I also put links to charitable organizations as well. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. If you'd like to advertise on Imaginary Worlds, let us know. Send an email to sponsors at multitude.productions. 
The best way to support Imaginary Worlds is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you get either free Imaginary Worlds stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can also get access to an ad-free version of the show through Patreon, and you can buy an ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the show's newsletter at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.